Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. This week's episode features Eric Edmeads. This is almost like a rags to riches story. Here, Eric tells us from how he created a truly exceptional life. He went from being out on the streets to then creating a life of a serial entrepreneur. He's an in speaker, an author, a husband, and a father. My greatest challenge was trying to come up with a question that Eric couldn't answer. This is a really yummy conversation, one for the heart. This week's podcast is sponsored by Lifecycle. Lifecycle are Australia's leading medicinal mushroom growers. They're focused on solving global issues using mushroom biotechnologies. Lifecycle's magic mushroom ranges enable and enhance states of well-being in delicious and convenient drinks. My personal experience with medicinal mushrooms is that in the last four years that I've been taking medicinal mushrooms as a health supplement in my morning tonics, I have not been sick for the last four years. My personal favorites are Shaga, Reishi, Cordyceps, and Lion's Mane. A little bit about them. Shaga is great for your immunities. Reishi is great to recover and de-stress. Uh, Lion's Mane is great as a nootropic and cordyceps great for performance at the moment the guys at life cycle have been they've been so generous so kind they're really supporting the work that the inspired evolution is doing and they love the vibe that we're all about so they're offering the listeners of the inspired evolution for 15 percent off anything that you want to order from life cycle so i'm completely humbled by this generous offer of theirs so find your way to their website check out what's on offer again my favorites are shaga reishi lion's mane and cordyceps and get yourself 15% off 15% off comes with a discount code with the name amrit a-m-r-i-t my first name chuck that in there upgrade your health look after yourself and tune into a yummy conversation here 
Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, and it is such a treat to be here today. Today, I have the blessing to be here with Eric Edmeets. Eric, how are you, brother? I'm good. Glad to be here. It is such a treat to have you here. For those tuning in for the first time, Eric is a serial entrepreneur, an international business speaker, author, and a husband and a father, right? And so this is going to take a minute because Eric has has his fingers in many pies, let's put it that way. Um He's a true serial entrepreneur. He spent the last 20 years starting, buying, selling, turning around businesses in over six countries. He's owned businesses in data capture, field service, wireless networking, events management, high-fidelity medical simulation, and even Hollywood special effects, right? That is so diverse. I can't wait to jump into this conversation. Um, Eric's logged over 10,000 hours on stage and spoken over 20 different countries around the world. He routinely speaks at business, marketing, technology conferences, film festivals, corporate engagements, does pro bono talks, and the real reason why he's here is because he's widely regarded as one of the most effective business and personal mentors in the world, right? His life is a reflection of the results he creates for others. A long-time student of extraordinary living, as Eric puts it, he's extremely good at both inspiring and empowering people to live compelling, enjoyable, and rewarding lives. He's a champion of healthcare and self-care. He's one of the most, he was a true pioneer. He created this thing called Wild Fit. Um, he's passionate about helping people, and in particular children, the future generation, achieve and experience outstanding health. In 1991, Eric experienced his own dramatic health recovery, which undertook and then undertook years of research into fields of human health, evolutionary biology, human history. Today, he's passionate about helping people achieve a vibrant health and inspiring people to take responsibility for their own self-care. And then most importantly, right, he's a dedicated father and a husband. <laughs> he's had some really good chats with his son, who's now in university in Canada, and uh, I, just, I just can't wait to dive into this conversation. <laughs> It's going to be fun. Um, so I think I like. I usually like to start it quite lighthearted and not, but now that you're here, it's just extraordinary living. Like, because this was a really tough, really tough conversation to prepare for. Um, you, there's Wild Fit. There's the Speakers Academy. There's the the multifaceted different businesses that you've input your fingers in, and. There is a conversation I'm looking forward to having on stress because I know that's a big thing um, and you've got a really interesting philosophy on that and I have one too. Um, but extraordinary living, what does that mean to you? And what I think fundamentally I would like to sort of draw into the conversation is the like the context of your life. Like why has your life been the artwork that you've sort of used as the canvas to demonstrate what extraordinary living is? I, I think of... Um I think even now, there's a lot of people who live lives that are um, about survival. They're, they're about you know waking up in the morning, going to do a job that they don't really like uh, in order to pay rent for a house or apartment that they're not all that thrilled with in order to keep uh, you know some semblance of safety or survival in their life. And I, um, I, I really like I see all these people struggling to find their life's purpose and their life's mission. And, and I, what I would suggest is I, I think that. Um, everyone's life purpose should first of all be the same and that is to enjoy it. it, it just, it's, it's that simple. Like that. Just the first thing should be about enjoying it. Yeah. And, and then once you, you kind of, at least in my world, once I kind of tapped into that, uh, then it just became a question of evaluating the decisions I needed to make on what was going to create maximum enjoyment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and I don't mean in this kind of hedonistic at all costs, mm-hmm. I mean that you have to look at the timeline and say what's going to be most enjoyable you know, having children is a really good example. 
you know, I, I often uh, talk to people about the decision making process and I use the decision to have children as a, an example of how it works. And the way it works is that you, 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 you see yourself in the present. I'm here in this moment and I have a choice. Have a baby. Don't have a baby. Uh-huh. And the way most people create decision fatigue for themselves is that they, they, they create, the steps are you create an imaginary future where you don't have the baby. Yeah. And then you create an imaginary future where you do have the baby. So the first thing is to accept that those futures are both imaginary. Uh-huh. You have no idea. Yeah. And as a parent, I can say that people who don't have children literally have no idea what they're imagining. <laughs> I bet. And so then what has to happen is you have to imagine those two timelines and then compare them against each other. Yeah. So, you know, for example, if, if a man and a woman are sitting discussing whether to have a child or not, well, over the next hour or so, having a child seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> but, you know, nine months later, it's going to be a very different situation. And then a year later and a year later and then 30 years later. Mm. And, and a lot of people don't think about that. Like I, when, when my wife and I were talking about it, one of the things we talked about is what did we want our life to be like when we were in our 70s, 80s and so on. And having children around at that stage was actually really important to us. And yeah. that's a fascinating thought process. It's not just about the having little versions of you and me running around kind of conversation. It's yeah. the what's it going to be like over our lifespan. Mm-hmm. But what most people are doing is comparing the time. They're taking these two fantasy futures and they're comparing the time frames uh, and they're going, well, it'd be fun right now. Okay, well, it won't be fun in a year. And then it'll be and yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And my simple thing is, over the span of your life, which one is going to create most enjoyment? And enjoyment's an important word. Yeah. Enjoyment doesn't mean easy. Mm. Enjoyment doesn't mean um, that you love it all. Enjoyment doesn't mean that you're happy all the time. I, kids are, again, such a good example for this because I always tell people, all children are going to do is expand the emotional experience you have. Mm-hmm. They're going to give you lows like you've never had before, <laughs> but they're going to give you highs like you've never had before. Yeah. And and I think of the word enjoy as as differently i don't mean enjoy means it's all good mm-hmm. i mean enjoy means enjoy the deliciousness of it one mm-hmm. way or the other you know in the, the same way it's, it, yeah. yeah it's like in the, like it's kind of a silly example but you know if somebody's in a car accident they enjoy the benefits of their car insurance i mean enjoy yeah. <laughs> what it means is to appreciate right yeah and so you know it, we, we, when somebody goes through a really terrible breakup what kind of music do they put on Sad music. Why? Yeah, yeah. Because they're enjoying it. Speaks to a part of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're enjoying the deliciousness of the intensity of that emotion in that moment. And so extraordinary living to me is finding a way to enjoy, to appreciate, Uh, to have gratitude for the complete emotional range of experience you're having. Yeah, so for me the thing that's really exciting is that, you know, you've created many different ventures and many different things. Like I said before, your fingers are in many different pies. So when you talk about this... It's not just something like people have many philosophies that are saying, you know, live a life that's rich as a tapestry and your lows do give you your highs. But knowing that you've invested and started different businesses, you help people, like you transform people through speaking and like and their health and fitness, people go through drastic lows and drastic highs. And you're at the nexus of a lot of this um, or holding space for a lot of this. And I find that context really potent. Um, Was that so this is this is a. At what point did you realize that this was going to be the trajectory for you? Like, we don't always geared a certain way to, like, want to live an extraordinary life, as you call it, like, full of enjoyment? Or was it something that was a catalyst? I think my mom would tell you that I was, like, a happy kid. You know, like, that I was was generally a happy kid, so I was generally a bliss seeker. I was generally a hedonist. I I would want to do that which was fun, and I (laughs) I think that I had a lot of that. 
Um, but the other side of it is I grew up, you know, I had a tough upbringing. My dad was an alcoholic and my parents divorced when I was young. You know, the, I, I mean, how, how many of us have that story? Um, and I think one of the things that that did for me is um, it made me recognize that my safety, my happiness, my security was actually up to me. You know, even mm-hmm. from a young age, even from six, seven, eight years old, I was like, well, it's kind of up to me. Right. And and I think that's... Um, I think that's one of the lessons that's often lost on people these days. They, they genuinely believe that their happiness is external. Mm-hmm. And even when they, they can read all the books and they can, you know, they can uh, listen to motivational speakers and they can theoretically understand the idea that it isn't. But the fact is they wait for external things to drive, drive their happiness. Yeah. And I think that because of the way I grew up, I just, I, maybe there was a part of me that was, um, you know, geared toward chasing my happiness. Like one of the things I like, you know, is it in the American Declaration of Independence or it says that, you know, you know, all people are, are equal, but there's a there's that bit where it says that people have the right to pursue happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I lived in England for ten years, and and I'll tell you one of the big differences between Americans and you know and and English people in massive stereotypical terms is that on the whole, English people think that their happiness is up to the government. <laughs> it's really? up to it's up to the weather. It's up to society. It's up yeah. to external stuff. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you tell your English yeah. friend that you're going off on vacation to you know the Maldives for two weeks, and they go, "Oh, really? It's all right for some people." In in America, they were told from the beginning, "You have the right to pursue happiness. Right. We're not guaranteeing it to you. You got to go get it." Yeah, and yeah. I think that's that. I think that because of the way I grew up, I maybe I had a little bit of that that understanding that my happiness was ultimately going to be up to me. Mm. So there's a lot of self-responsibility in that that you've addressed, but also I'm intrigued by what you think was or what is your takeaway in terms of staying dedicated to that path of happiness? Well, I, it's really simple. Avoid pain. Like I, I'll give you a really great example. I made one of the classic entrepreneurial mistakes where I built up a company, I sold it, and mm. I had enough cash that if I lived wisely and invested fairly well, I mean, nothing fancy, mm-hmm. um, I probably could have lived for the rest of my life without having to worry about money. And and then, you know, one day I was offered this opportunity to buy a company. So I took most of my money and bought mm. that company. And this is a typical entrepreneur mistake is take <laughs> this massive financial security that you've created and then risk it again and uh and so i did that and it turned out to be a terrible risk it turned out to be a terrible decision on paper in my in the scope of my life it was one of the best decisions i ever made Mm -hmm. but it took time for it to be seen that way and so here we were owning this company um that the uh, the owners previous to us had used it for investment scam after investment scam after investment scam because Uh it had been a part of industrial light and magic it had been part of lucasfilm and so it was very sexy yeah. And so the previous owners had played a lot of games inside it. And so by the time I took ownership, I was immediately slammed with a bunch of lawsuits. And and, wow. and, 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 and there were all kinds of technological claims that the owners had made that turned out not to be true. Wow. And so I was left with this situation where I had invested my nest egg, my security in this company. Yeah. And, I, and, and I was going to lose it all. Sure. And we were quite literally week by week by week facing the reality of losing the company. Every week we'd have a difficult time with payroll or workers' compensation or union fees or whatever it was that we were struggling with. And every single week there was something threatening that you're going to lose the business and that everybody's going to lose their jobs and that I was going to lose all the investment that I put into it. Yeah. And and I remember at one stage my wife and I were, were at home and, and, and we're walking along on the beach and we're like, we're not happy. Mm. We're not happy because I have taken this massive risk and it's turned out to be a bad risk. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the financial security that we created for ourselves was gone. Yep. And our best case scenario was we were going to lose all our money 
and that we might somehow be able to preserve the jobs of the people in this company. That's the best case scenario. Yeah. And, and week by week, it didn't look like we were going to preserve their jobs. And so we were walking along and, and I just, I turned to my wife at one point and I said, I can't do this. My happiness is not about that. Like, I, yeah. you know, look around us right now. Look at the way the waves are curling in on the sand right now. I mean, that is gorgeous. Yeah. You know, look, they smell the air around us. That's amazing. Yeah. And so my happiness can't be about this one thing that isn't going correctly right now. And so mm. I said, maybe what we need to do is we need to look at the worst case scenario. I said, what's the worst thing that could happen? Uh-huh. And so we played it out. The worst thing that could happen is that we'd lose the business. We'd lose all our investment. All those people would lose their jobs. We would go back to our home. We had we, we owned a house in, in Turks and Caicos at the time, mortgaged. So it's not like we owned it, like it was still going to be stressful. And my, my wife at that point did have a, a job and we took a look at the budget. And we said, okay, God, we could go from being really quite wealthy to living on her salary. Could we make that work? We did a budget. We're like, okay, worst case scenario, we could make that work. And so I'm like, okay, so worst case scenario is we go home and we start all over again. We're not going to be at the soup kitchen. You know, as Wayne Dyer put it, if it gets really, really terrible, you can just go to Safeway, go to a grocery store and you can always steal grapes just quietly, you know, well, we weren't even going to have to use that plan. We were just going to go home and start again. And as soon as we realized that rock bottom was livable and and in our world, most of us live in countries where rock bottom is livable. And so most other places. (laughs) Yeah. And so once we got to that, we suddenly are like, all right, well with that in mind, let's just be happy. Yo, Let's just be happy. Let's not care about all that. Let's just be happy. And I'll tell you, look, we can get into the metaphysics of this. Like, we did it. We truly got happy. We started, you know, we went out for dinner and we started cooking for ourselves and, and, and enjoying our company and, you know, enjoying each other. And just, we got back to being happy. And then about a month and a half later, all of a sudden we get this phone call from one of the studios and we landed Pirates of the Caribbean. And then we landed Elysium. And then we landed a couple of other movies. And so suddenly our studio that was really struggling, bam, 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 yeah. we landed all this business. Now, now here's the tough part. The, 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 my metaphysical friends want to tell me that the reason that that happened is that I was wearing the right crystals and I was burning the right incense and it was because I found um happiness. And as a result of that happiness, I sent a signal out into the universe and now the universe is delivering through law of attraction. Yeah. Or that stuff was going to happen anyway. Mm. But thank God we found happiness first because if we had not, then we would have been upset, depressed, sad, whatever. And then we would have started winning these deals. And then we would have found happiness and it would have reinforced, reinforced the idea that our happiness was driven by the external. Yeah, well. So whichever it is, I don't really care. The fact is we found happiness. And, and you got the key. lessons the way that they were meant to arrive to enrich yeah. your life the way that they have. That's amazing. So I know this is probably just one story out of many that you've failed tribulation through. And I think I want to use this as a gateway to sort of jump into stress um, because... In this conversation, you'll quickly realize um, you've got an, you've got an evolutionary um, view on what stress is all about, and I'm a big fan of stress, um, especially just tr- like working with people and trying to help them evolve. I feel like stress is incredible because it's um, it's something that invariably is nature's signal to them going, "Hey, you're not doing what you're meant to be doing, Ruster, or you're not looking after yourself." You know what I mean? And people have this adverse relationship with stress. They hate it. And it's like, you know, trying to avoid it. But it's like, it's actually your life communicating to you via stress. And I know that you have a, have a position on stress as well. And the, like what that actually means for you in terms of almost Darwinian natural selection, right? Well, let's back up for a minute. One mm-hmm. of the challenges with language is that there are only so many words yeah. and there are far more definitions than words, <laughs> right? So there are yeah. a limited pool of words and an unlimited pool of definitions. And so, 
for example, when we say something like, is meat good or bad? Mm. Yes, it can be good <laughs> and bad. Uh, you know, and, and, and so the one word is, is not really sufficient to sure. discuss what that thing is. And, uh-huh. you know, um, I think the same thing is true with, with stress. That we think of stress, and immediately most people, when you talk about stress, they 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 think of negative stress. Uh-huh. They think of um, you know being stressed about uh, their life or feeling unsafe or you know this this negative stress. What I would suggest is what we have to do is look at what stress really is, and stress is. Um, it means that things are challenging. Mm-hmm. So, but it can be positive stress. It can be negative stress, and and so when somebody has short term positive stress, I think it's incredibly valuable. I mean, uh, I was reading a little while ago, speaking of, you know, sort of Darwinian principles, that when somebody has really intense short-term stress, one of the things that's fascinating is, is that, you know, we have two primary fuel sources. We burn sugar, which is not the ideal fuel source for living. And then we burn fat, which is really a great fuel source for living. We also can burn protein. And so what happens when we have, apparently when we have really powerful short-term stress is that there's a process that starts to happen in the liver where we actually start breaking down proteins and we start burning that protein. Mm. But I think what also happens during that time, at least according to this article I was reading, is that at that stage the body actually, when it's, when it's burning those proteins, it's choosing to burn the least functional ones. Uh-huh. And so it's actually, that short-term stress is actually acting like this cleaning system for cells that might need to be out anyway. It's ordering on a cleanse. <laughs> exactly. So it's like stimulating a cleanse in a sense. And then, yeah. which is interesting because even with really positive short-term stress, somebody can find themselves having a little bit of a cold afterward or feeling a little bit run down. Yeah. The body's just gone through this, like, you know, maybe a bit of an elimination process. Mm-hmm. So short-term stress, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And in fact, I think short-term stress can create some of the very best learning ever. You know, we've just finished our speaking academy here mm-hmm. i will tell you it's it's uh, it's one of the most effective tools for transformation i've ever seen I, mm-hmm. I maybe it seems a bit you know self-serving for me to say that about my own program i will tell you during this program this time here in Thailand, uh there were two women that were so stressed that on day three or four of the program they're basically like rebelling they're like I'm, this is one of them was like outwardly angry with me about it. Like mm. the way you've done this and the way you've done this. Cause one of the things is really intense practice, but that practice is, is designed to induce some stress because mm. in that stress, it's going to activate clearer thinking, clearer learning. Mm. And, 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 you know, true to form, both of them have come out and said it was the best thing ever. <laughs> and, and th- that, that's sometimes how stress is in the yeah. short term. When I talk, when people ask me to talk about stress, it's usually because they've seen me talking on YouTube about it and, or something like that. And, and in that case, I'm generally talking about pervasive long-term stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I believe that's one of the most dangerous things that people can have is pervasive long-term stress, yeah. where they are allowing the conditions of their life to uh, cause a pervasive sense that they're under threat. Yeah. And the reason being is that when they are like that, they are producing a constant flow of, of cortisol and adrenaline and, yeah. and, 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 and their immune system is being depressed. And and so, you know, when people are under that kind of stress, they're far more likely to get sick. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're far more, I think they're shortening their life when they do that. And there's, there's, a, there's a raft of research that suggests that's true. I saw somebody recently. Um... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On one of my videos, somebody commented that this has all been, you know, rebutted. It's been proven that stress doesn't shorten people's lives. I'm like, wow, like, uh, you know, they were saying that the only time stress shortens your life is when you know you're under stress. I, I don't really, or, or it was even worse than that. They were saying that the only time stress will shorten your life is when you believe that stress will shorten your life. Well, yeah, that's because that would be stressful. That is such a mind gamble. Yeah. I, yeah. So, but, but I, I, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is it's really simple, but you know, if you look at chimpanzees and we, let's not mistake how closely related we are to chimpanzees. Yeah. I mean, you have chimpanzees and you have bonobos mm. and they are very, very closely related. And we are more, we share more DNA with the one than the other one does, yeah. you know? So we, I think there's some, you know, lessons that we might be able to draw there. And one of the things that I found fascinating is that when you have a troop of chimpanzees, mm. they groom each other. You've seen it. You know, they pick mitts out of each other and they groom each other. But there's some interesting stuff. You only groom a chimpanzee that's senior in social rank to you. Oh. It's just the way that works. You only groom the, the chimps that are senior in social rank to you, which means that the lowest ranking chimpanzees, nobody's grooming them. Right. Well, that's interesting because when they're being groomed, it reduces their stress hormones and increases their pleasure and relaxation mm-hmm. hormones. When they're not being groomed, there's nothing doing. It's like, so the chimpanzees at the lowest rank, nobody's grooming them. Sure. So there's, so there's nothing like reducing their stress hormones and there's nothing, not, not, they're not producing lots of oxytocin and gorgeous stuff. Yep. And guess what? In the troop, they have the shortest lifespans. Right. And, and frankly, I believe it's sort of a Darwinian principle of if you're the lowest ranking member of the clan, well, it's probably for a reason. Sure. It's been because you're not as effective a hunter, or you're not as effective a parent, or you're not as effective a communicator, or whatever the case may be. Uh-huh. And so if you're not as effective, then in a Darwinian sense, we don't really want you having children. Mm. And so I think that was nature's way of saying, well, if you're the lowest ranking in the social order of things, it's best that we don't have you using up the resources that the... Yeah. And so stress kills. Uh-huh. And so I, and I think that where that has become dangerous for us is that our world... We've flipped a whole lot of stuff. There's, there's this principle I've been uh, writing about recently called the evolution gap. Yep. I really fundamentally believe that most of the unhappiness and difficulty that people suffer in their lives today stems from one thing. And that is that our, our, our physiology and our psychology evolved for a certain lifestyle. And that lifestyle was sub-Saharan Africa. And our pace of change in society happened so quickly that our psychology and our physiology didn't keep up with that. Yep. And so today we've switched things. The most successful members of our society are often the most stressed out. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's the, you know, they're walking along in the hallway one day and they have such a coronary event that they're dead before they hit the floor. Yeah. The environment that we live in now is not the environment that biologically we're set up to be in, which is so, so fascinating. Um, you've traveled quite a bit to experience a lot of these. You've, tra- you've traveled to Africa. You've, you've seen a lot. Well, of- I, I was born there. That was my first oh. travel to Africa. <laughs> 
<laughs> Tell me more about that. What about what you want? I was born in South Africa. My my family's been in South Africa. I mean, I, I, if, if I understand the family history well enough, my great great however many times back grandmother was the first white woman born north of the Orange River in in Sub-Saharan Africa as like early early settlers to South Africa yeah wow incredible Mm. incredible so the thing that we that really struck me was your um your curiosity in that like obviously we 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 discussed a lot about stress but the, the the way you've dived all the way in even to the metaphysical and then also the understanding of what stress does in your body right and before that we were just talking about happiness in your relationship with the world at what point do these ideas start to crystallize for you and it's becoming a message that you're going to share? Like, Okay, in the strangest sense, you know, uh, as a kid, in the strangest sense, 13, 14, 15 years old, uh, as much as I could not figure out girls for the life of me, like I, I, I was the worst, I was the worst, but I could for everybody else. So yeah, right. like my friends, when they were having relationship strife, they would come to me and say, oh, but I think this and she says that or whatever. And, and I was always the one that could like, you know, bring them back together. I was uh-huh. always the one who could create that. I was a good, I was good at conflict resolution and yeah. helping friends come together or helping people, you know, meet the one they wanted. Like I just had a, a thing about that. So in a really kind of, in a real sense, I was sort of coaching as a kid, mm-hmm. even though I, I had no idea how to make it work for me in my life. I, I, people would come to me and had these problems and I never really noticed that. It's not something I really thought a great deal about. Um, but there was a, there was an event some years ago where my wife and I were at a workshop and there was a woman there who had been, um, she'd been suicidal and I ended up having a conversation with her and I just, I was just, I'm curious about suicide. You know, I, I'm, I'm curious about what, um, drives a person to that point. And I'm also curious about the difference between men and women in suicide. You know, it's like men typically like kill themselves and women make several attempts often. And so, you know, when I met this woman, I sort of was asking her a little bit about her process and how she knew she wanted to kill herself and why. And, yeah. and we ended up having this really deep breakthrough conversation. And what I didn't realize is that my wife was there for the conversation. Like, I was, I was just meeting this woman in the hallway, and we just started having this conversation. And then there was a group of people gathering around. And, and I was so focused on my conversation with this woman that I didn't notice the group of people gathered around. And, um, and you know, she and I had a really deep conversation, and then I, we went our separate ways. And the next day, my wife ended up having lunch with her. And the woman said to my wife that, you know, we were at a workshop. uh, It was actually a Tony Robbins workshop. And she said, wow, this workshop's really helped me out. Tony's really helped me. And she used her hands to gesture that her life had been lifted to a point. Mm. But she said, but then I met this guy in the hallway yesterday. Mm. And he just asked me some questions. And he just said some things. And and then she lifted her hand like really high up. And she goes, and that took me to this new place where I'm going to be living a different life. And, um, you know, her, her issue was that she'd been born with some really difficult birth defects and she'd been having surgeries and surgeries and surgeries. And, mm. and, you know, she'd had this goal of like wanting to move off to Thailand and she never had a boyfriend. And six months later, she's in Thailand and she's teaching English and she has a boyfriend. And, and so my wife at that point said to me, we have to get you out into the world. I'm like, I'm running my company over here. Yeah. And she goes, no, she says, there's something you've got. You've got to get it out there. You've got to, you've got to take it out in the world. And, and, and really, that was the first time that I really thought to myself, yeah, I, I do. I have a message beyond running companies. I can run a company and I can impact the lives of my employees and the lives of my customers. But maybe, maybe I want to do something bigger. And it really, I think, stemmed, it stemmed from that conversation. And frankly, from, from my wife saying, wow, I see you in a way you can't see you. Mm-hmm. And I think, frankly, it's, it's um, I think that's one of the, 
I think that's one of the jobs that our significant partners are supposed to have in our lives mm-hmm. is to see the magnificence in us that we can't see. Unfortunately, I think many people have partners that can see the minutia of imperfections <laughs> better, better than they can. <laughs> yeah, there's that age-old saying, right? behind every successful man is, a, is, is an incredible woman as well, and that vision is a big part of uh, the feminine aspect of things as well. I um, Yeah, I'm really inspired by that. So how... How long has it been since you decided to take that, like, take yourself and your message on the road and sharing it with people? Properly now, about five years, yeah. you know, properly now. I mean, I, I've done speaking in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. When I sold my first company, I just started traveling around the world and I did a two-year speaking tour where I spoke in about 20 countries about business and just, that was a lot of fun. And that's probably what woke me up to and helped me develop a lot of the skills and what have you to really wake me up to this possibility. But then I got back into the business world for a long time uh-huh. and, uh, uh, another big change that came along is I got a random phone call out of the blue one day asking me if I would come and teach business and marketing at Tony Robbins uh, business mastery programs. And as he'd, he'd had a massive impact on me in my late teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was listening to him on, okay, tapes. I know, I know. It's a long <laughs> what time. What are those? I know, I know. Your generation doesn't understand. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. I was listening to him in the car in, you know, on, on cassette tapes at yeah. 17, 18, 19 years Amazing. old. And so to get this phone call was, you know, pretty fascinating. And mm-hmm. then to spend the next year and a half uh, speaking at his events and spending a lot of time with him, yeah. I think that that also really turned me on to want to, you know, to want to do more of it. And so uh, that happened about five or six years ago. And after that, we, uh, you know, I sat down with my wife and said, look, what, what do we really want to do in the world? And at that point, I realized that there were two big things. The uh-huh. one is that I had some... I had a unique set of skills and I had some special knowledge around how to help people transform their health just because yeah. of what I'd gone through as a kid and the research that I'd done. And I wanted to find a way to take that, those skills and take that knowledge and, and, and actually create change. I didn't want to create just another diet that, you know, would like prescribe a set of rules and that people would follow those rules under mm-hmm. some stringent willpower that they would lose track of within 45 minutes or maximum a few days. Yeah. And that's traditionally how the diet industry works. And so we, you know, we sat down and said, well, how could we actually affect change in people? Like, where they really got it? Uh-huh. And, and then at the same time, we were like, and who ultimately do we want to change? Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a whole planet of people, yeah, right? Yeah, so who, yeah. you know, and not just from a marketing perspective, but more from an influence perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I made the decision at that point that if I was going to spend a huge amount of time and devote my life toward having a big impact, that the average person on the street was not where I wanted to go and politicians was not where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like if I, for example, was really able to empower people to improve their health and have more money and have more time in their life, mm-hmm. if I do that for the average citizen, they just buy a bigger TV and spend more time watching it. If I do that for politicians, well, you know, frankly, I, I know some politicians and I love them and I understand their passion. And mm-hmm. the fact is, is that with rare exception, mm-hmm. uh, when you're talking about people that are say in Congress or in parliament, they spend this huge amount of effort getting their job. Yep. Then they get their job for four years. And yep. then they spend the last two years of that four years trying to re-get their job. Mm. You know, it just is not an efficient system. And so yep. I didn't want to play in that arena. But I did find an arena that I thought was really fascinating. And that was business. Like, I, what happened in my life was when I built my first company, after about five or six years, I didn't have to go to work anymore. Like, my mm. company ran so smoothly, I didn't have to be there. And I became bored. And I think what the planet needs right now is bored entrepreneurs. Uh It needs entrepreneurial people who are bored silly with their companies so that they'll start another company or they'll take on a social project or that they'll take their company to another level. And the challenge is that most entrepreneurs are not bored. They're stressed. Uh And they're stressed solving problems that have already been solved. Uh 
And so I was like, ah, what if I went and solved those problems for them so that they could apply their creativity and optimism to real issues? Like how to reduce the amount of plastic in, that is flowing into our oceans or how to improve air quality or how to make sure that, that women have rights. It's in, 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 I mean, I've traveled extensively around East Africa. The way women are treated in that part of the world is deplorable, and that's not even the worst of, uh, of, of what we face. Yeah. So if, if I could help entrepreneurs become bored with their businesses, wouldn't they then potentially turn their creativity and opti- optimism to fixing some of the world's great problems? Oh, that's quite a lever that you found. That's like the, that was the biggest change makers and enabling them to free up their time to yeah. make the change and the impact further. That is quite the... Yeah, I don't even know what the metaphor for that is, but that is an amazing. It was just a matter of taking a look at saying, hey, if I help one entrepreneur, Uh then the immediate thing to recognize is that they have all their employees and it's going to spread down through them. But Mm -hmm. then beyond that, when they've they've made their business operate, they're going to grow it and they're going to create more employment and they're going to pay more taxes or they're going to take on social projects. Mm. So at that point, my wife and I took a look and said, "That's then, then we have two big missions here. One is about self-care, and the other one is about entrepreneurship. Uh-huh. And so we created the Business Freedom Academy and started teaching entrepreneurship. Right. And, and we created WildFit and started teaching our entrepreneurs how to maximize their, their energy, their cognition, their sleep, and what right. have you for business. And that's what gave birth to WildFit. That makes a lot of sense now how those two things are coupled. So I want to ask you because there's obviously a, like quite a there's not a split between the two now. We've obviously formed why they're connected. But what is the message in your heart that you're most passionate about to share? You know, I think it it really comes down to life is short and have the most fun that you can. Like yeah. have the most fun you can. We tend not to regret the things we did do. We tend to regret the things we didn't do. Mm. And you know, because you do something, and even when it has a negative consequence, you 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 grow spiritually and you become a better. I mean, how many how many how many things have happened in your life or in the life of anybody who's listening right now? Where at the time mm. it was deplorable, at the time it was painful, at the time it was regretful, and then in the benefit of time. You look back at it and go, geez, I'm really glad I did that. I'm really glad I went through that. Medicine. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, so one of the concepts that we speak a lot about at our workshops, and I have a book that I'm working on about this, is called The Hindsight Window. Uh-huh. And The Hindsight Window is the period of time between a bad event taking place, bad in quotes, obviously, yeah, yeah. Uh, taking place, and the day that you reconcile it, that you mm-hmm. recognize it as brilliance, that you recognize it as one note in the symphony of an otherwise amazing and outstanding extraordinary life. Yeah. The trouble is, is, is that my, or at least my feeling is, is that the longer somebody's hindsight window is, the less fundamentally happy they are as a human being. In other words, they had a bad event happen five years ago, and if they're still dwelling on it, yeah. then it's affecting their happiness on a day-by-day basis. Sure. Whereas if they can find a way to close that window sooner, mm. then they're going to experience a much higher average degree of happiness in their life. Makes a lot of sense. Right to the point that what if, and this is the holy grail, Mm. but what if they could get to a point where as soon as something was happening that was quote unquote bad, what if they could in that moment see it as brilliance? Mm. What if they could in that moment see that bad event and go, wow, this is unpleasant. Man, am I having an opportunity to learn right now. (laughs) Find gratitude for that in that moment. Find the gratitude then instead of having to wait until the memory is dulled or or two years have passed. Yep, yep. Love that message. Love that message. Super potent. Comes back to staying in the present, staying with the now, and like really, um, um, like availing yourself to the opportunities that are in the present moment. Super potent. So, 
we've discussed our relationship with ourselves. How do you feel the like the tapestry of time and everything like with everybody else? Can I go there in the conversation? Absolutely. So like obviously there's the hindsight window for myself and like the moments that I have and the, the closer I draw that in with myself, there's almost like that quantum relationship between healing myself in the present moment rather than going out into the future, waiting five years to go back and look back and be like, yeah, I should heal this this way. Um, what about how we're all interconnected and the hindsight window of where we're all going, you know, in terms of how we're all interconnected? Does that have any space for that? You know, I, I think the this illusion of separation, you know, I think it serves a purpose. Mm. You know, uh, I, I have this sort of weird metaphor for the way I view life and maybe it comes from playing too many video games as a kid <laughs> or it might come from that at, at 15 years old I was homeless and one of the ways I got myself off the streets was I negotiated a deal that let me live in a video arcade uh-huh. so I have my video game theory of life and it, and it, and it works kind of like this that let's imagine that when we're not here experiencing this life, you know, everybody has their theory about afterlife or before life and reincarnation and you know, heaven and hell and so on sure. but let's just Let's just leave all the labels out and let's say, what if when we're not having this physical life, there is some form of non-physical spiritual life? Now, if that were true, it must be awfully interesting and blissful initially to be alleviated out of the pain and suffering and the stress of living Mm -hmm. and be in this glorious, fully connected spiritual existence with no curiosity of any kind and but equally no tension. Sure. You know, it would be very difficult to, for uh, you would never have hunger and therefore food would never taste good. In fact, you wouldn't need to eat food because you're this non-spiritual, non-physical spiritual being. Mm. Now I'm thinking initially that might be really pleasant. It yeah. might be like just living in one great orgasm the whole time, <laughs> just like in this incredible brilliance. Yeah. But then I think it would get boring. Yeah. And, and, and the minute it would get boring, you know, let's say you and I are in our non-physical form up there and, mm. and we're so interconnected that we don't even have to con- have a conversation. But if we could have a conversation, it might go like this. Oh, I really, I miss pizza. You know, I, 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 I miss first kisses. Yeah. I miss sand between my toes and yeah. walking on the beach. And I just wish I could live again. And then you're like, Dude, remember what it's like to have a credit card to pay? <laughs> like, you know, a dental. Do you remember what it's like to go to the dentist? Go, yeah, but right now I've, I, I'm so empty of feeling that I would like to go to the dentist. Yeah. I would like to feel the passion of jealousy. I would like to feel the passion of anger. I would love to feel the early throes of love. Mm-hmm. I want to have that full deliciousness of physical experience. Yeah. And so, so then I would, you, you, you know, we might go and, 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 and talk to the person who controls whether we get to have this life. And we go, listen, I want to go back down to earth and I want to have a life. And they go, all right, you can, but here's what you need to know. Mm. In order for you to fully experience the jeopardy of life, I'm going to have to create for you a full on and complete illusion of separation mm. and a complete illusion of, 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 of mortality. Mm. I'm going to have to have you believe that if you are suffering, that that suffering is real. That if you are, are if your life is under threat, that you are under threat. Mm-hmm. I, the illusion is going to have to be absolutely complete in order for you to get the full deliciousness of the moment. Which means that you are going to suffer real pain at times. Yeah. Do you still want to go down there? And I think we opt in. I think we say yes. And so we come down into this illusion of separation because that is where our spiritual growth is, that we have to feel separate and that we, 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 we have to feel pain. And we, look, you, food, only, food tastes its very best when you're at your most hungry. 
Yeah, <laughs> so true. And so we have to have that experience. And so then we come down here and, and, and we go into this, you know, we start experimenting with the, with the spiritual and we start mm-hmm. going, oh, aren't we really one? And even as we acknowledge our oneness, we go, yeah, but we're still separate. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to eat this here food, there's only, you know, it's going to get divided. We're not going to yeah. you know. There. And, and I, I think that's kind of yeah. how it is, is that we're, we're, we're supposed to come together mm-hmm. and we're constantly, constantly going to be reminded that we're not. Mm, I love that. I sometimes wonder, and this is getting super metaphysical now, but if we already, like you said, decide to choose the lessons that we come to learn in that emotional state. I wonder about that. Like, here's a great example. You know, you hear people say, this is sort of silly metaphysics now, but this person's a really old soul. I still don't know what that means. But. I think I know. Yeah. I think I've got it. Tell me. Haven't you ever met somebody where it's absolutely clear that they don't understand the rules? <laughs> like they come down into earth and they come into their life and they just get it wrong in every possible way. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and, and then I think of it this way that, if you were brand new at the video game of life, what mm-hmm. kind of life would you choose? You would choose the, the one that appeared to be the easiest. The safe. You'd yeah. be like, oh, I want to be a rock star. <laughs> I'd like to be like, I'd like to be a major politician, yeah. leader of the free world. <laughs> like, you know, there are some that would argue that we currently have a politician <laughs> in charge of one country who clearly is on earth for the very first time. No, Just points, no points for guessing who that is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then every now and again, you meet somebody and you're like, Wow, they're an old soul. So what, what, maybe, maybe, maybe it is a bit like that. Maybe you, you come down and you go, God, you know, I, I've never played the game before. Oh my God, Rockstar looks really cool. Uh-huh. And that's why so many of them are dead at 27. Yo. Because they come in here and, and they don't understand the rules. And they don't understand that happiness is internal. Yeah. And so they seek drugs and alcohol as rather than seeking... I mean, look, people have their opinions on how to use those things. I, I choose not to drink. I don't have any judgment about it. Mm-hmm. There's definitely the difference between somebody who has alcohol as, a, as, as something they enjoy in the moment and mm-hmm. somebody who's drowning their life in it. Yeah. And so, you know, these people come in and... But maybe, maybe, maybe once you've been here two or three or four or five or six hundred thousand times, maybe one time you come down and go... I wonder what it's like to be a seven-year-old child that's dying from leukemia. Mm. I wonder what that'd be like. And maybe, they, maybe we opt in for that journey. Mm. And, and I have no idea. Mm. But sometimes it helps me sleep at night better thinking that maybe it's on some level like that. That maybe on some level we come down in this life and we choose the spiritual journey we're supposed to be on. And, and in order for us to learn those lessons, the spiritual journey, ha- the illusion has to be complete. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it ties back into uh, what's ringing for me at the moment is a couple of things is before when you were discussing the, uh, the like we're sitting in heaven I was, uh, or like in the interconnected state of everything, heaven is just a word, um, there would be no music <laughs> because there's no sorrow, there's no happiness. And then what we were just discussing about really uh, for me was um, one of my favourite philosophers, Alan Watts, he talks about um, dreaming. And if you had the dream, like you knew that you could go into a dream and lucid dream, you would go out and you'd be like, sure, I'm going to dream the dream of the rock star, let's say, and have that dream and live the rock star life and have an amazing dream, wake up and be like, whoa, what a rush. And then down the track, it's like, okay, I'll get more curious about my dream. And eventually down the track, you would dream the dream that you're no longer dreaming. You know, it's like, I want to see what that's like, 80 years of a life without a dream and the, the lessons and the richness that comes from that just driven by pure curiosity, which I see emanating from you in every way. The curiosity is, a, is an amazing, amazing thing. Um, I'm, 
I'm at uh, I'm at a juncture where I could ask you many things, but I, I really want to just rewind a little bit, and I've got this curiosity that. You know, you said, you touched on it really briefly, you said you exchanged your way to living in a video arcade, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's really interesting because this Well, look, I gotta, if you're homeless and it's, and you're 15 years old and you're in Edmonton, Alberta and it's winter, you find a way to live indoors. <laughs> like, that, you know, that was Survival. Yeah. <laughs> Survival. Um, I'm curious because obviously by, you know, success is a relative thing, but you're, you're, you're well thriving at the moment. I can touch wood, say that for yourself. Um... There seems to be this thread of like, you know, people going through lows and then the, the lower the lows, almost the, the equivalent, the highs is kind of this thread in society. Touchwood for most people. Um, I know there are some people that suffer quite a bit, but it seems to be that success often has this has this past where it's had like some really uh, character building traits to it. Can you like share some of that on that? I, I you know, I, I think that. So when I was in school, uh, like um, maybe high school, mm -hmm. I remember having an economics teacher. And what an interesting time that was. Uh, I remember observing my economics teacher coming to class in like a 15-year-old Volvo and wondering why he was teaching me economics. Mm -hmm. You know, it, like it, it, it didn't seem like he'd like necessarily mastered economics. Yeah. Was, at 16, this was my narrow view of the world. Yeah. And, uh, and then one day he was explaining, he was talking about um, a very famous entrepreneur from our part of the world in Eastern Canada called Casey Irving. And Casey Irving at that stage um, owned like the largest chain of gas stations and the largest trucking company. And he was, a, I believe, a billionaire mm. and certainly a, a very, very high-end millionaire at the minimum. Mm. Um, but then what, the thing that struck me out of that whole lesson, the thing that struck me out of everything we learned about that guy was that he'd had something like three or four bankruptcies. Mm. And that made me realize that we often see the end result and we think that it was smooth sailing all the way. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy for us to do that. Yep. And the fact is, it's almost never like that. And, you know, the old cliche, you know, experience, uh, how does that work? Good judgment comes from experience. Oh. But of course, experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> you know, so what I think happens is that when we make decisions that, or when life triggers us to have these really low, low things, mm. low experiences, that activates incredibly strong learning. You know, at that moment when you're in pain, like I, I one of the things we talk about uh, in, in our speaking academy is that um, one of the most tragic mistakes that speakers make is that they speak in facts all the time. They just like lay off facts and, and without any emotion, those facts won't, won't sink in. You know, yeah. uh, emotion is the glue that causes a memory to stick. And so I think when, when, when we have a really painful situation, we have this heightened emotional experience. And that make, makes all the lessons from that time sink in really deeply. Yeah. In a way that if you were having a passive amount of pain, you might not really remember it. Well, it's deep as well. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that one of the reasons that people hit this kind of rock bottom and bounce really hard is they hit rock bottom and it causes a couple of things. They're like, wow, I don't want that anymore. And the second thing is, is that the pain causes them to really look around and go, what do I need to be learning from this? What do I need to be learning from this? And so they take those lessons with them uh, firmly because they're embedded deeply in their, in their subconscious because of the, the intensity of emotion they're having. Right. And, and I think the other thing that happens is, and this is really, maybe this is a little on the esoteric side, but the better it is, the better it is. And what I mean is, is that when, when you start to feel really abundant, you create mm -hmm. more abundance. Yeah. If you think of it, here's one of my little metaphors. Beliefs are like little organisms and they eat only one thing. 
evidence. That's all a belief is just like a little organism and it eats evidence. So if somebody has a belief that the world is harsh, that the world is pain, Mm -hmm. that the world is difficult, Uh then that belief sits inside them and looks for evidence and then it eats it and it eats it. And it more eats, the bigger the belief gets. And if it eats enough evidence, it's going to become a conviction, (laughs) right? It's going to become like code in their, in their being. Yeah. Conversely, if, if somebody has a belief that like, that the world is full of opportunity, uh-huh. then they're going to be constantly looking around and going, oh, look, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. And the belief's going to go, wow, there's opportunity. The world is opportunity. Yeah. And so I, I think that what happens sometimes when somebody has, let's say you have two people and both of them uh, go through some experiences, but one of them hits a rock bottom and the other one doesn't. Yeah. And then they both rise up to an equivalent place. The person who's hit rock bottom knows how good they've got it. Yeah. Right? They know how good they've got it. And that affects their beliefs. That affects their beliefs about how good it is. Uh-huh. And so they're like, wow, life is incredible. Belief, life is incredible. Eating evidence, life is incredible. The other one didn't have this dip. And they're like, life's okay. They're at the same level. And so in a weird way, the dip causes an acceleration of manifestation, an acceleration of, of observation. Amazing. Amazing. I love the way you grounded that in. That is so potent and this is touches me into the next point which i really wanted to have a conversation with about and i never would have let you go without having this chat storytelling brother storytelling um i'm fascinated by it um just to give you a, like a short thing into it i never really wanted to start a podcast um primarily because in, i had this thing against ego for me humility is the driving factor um and a lot of people that set up their own podcast have this, I'm the expert, come listen to me, rah, 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 sort of vibe about it. But I found a groove in storytelling and finding people's stories and their operating systems and why and that sort of stuff. And it's a really beautiful place. And I love storytelling primarily because we could share your story now and I'll get something from it now. And I can listen to it three years down the track and I'll get a whole myriad of different things from it. And that's just me. And if someone else is listening, they'll get a different thing and we'll talk about it and we'll get something even further I'm in awe of storytelling. I look at some of the old epics and how they've informed society as a collective as well. I know you're like, I'm a fan of your storytelling. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, what is storytelling to you and how has this been curated over time? Well, let me back up to one thing. Please. Um, this issue of, of podcasts, um, I just want to remind you of Napoleon Hill. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what Napoleon Hill did is he was fascinated by success. And mm-hmm. so what he did is he went out and collected stories. Yeah. He went out and he was the original podcaster. Uh, yeah. You know, what did he do? He went out and interviewed people that were getting the results. And so yeah. I think a, a, a podcast executed correctly is the, is the antithesis of ego. It is the, it is the, uh, the perpetual student. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a podcast, but uh, my team is pushing me to create one. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're asking me what we want to call it. And I said, I think we're going to call it the aspiring omnologist <laughs> because an omnologist, omnology means like having a, um, you know, a wide amount of knowledge about a vast number of things. And, uh, you know, that's what I want to have. I'm just curious all the time. So, so if I create a podcast, it's not about necessarily me sharing my stories or my mm-hmm. brilliance in any given situation. It's about me pulling it from others. Mm-hmm. So that's the, I just wanted to share that with you and the way you pot, the way you interview, I've, I've heard, I, I, I'm hearing you now and I hear the way you do it. It comes from that place of exactly what you're talking about, pulling other people's Thank stories. Thank you so much. Yeah. Just to, uh, like, I know there's space for your response, but just yesterday I delivered a whole course for here at Value on people setting up their own podcasts. And, um, it was incredible because it was driving people to find their own stories, find their own messages. And it was just the most incredible experience just seeing all the stories there are in people 
people that they're waiting to share yeah. and they're looking for a platform. And exactly what you shared was, I realized when Tony, like Tony Robbins wrote his book, Awaken the Giant Within, he went and interviewed a whole bunch of people. It's hard once you start a podcast, and I was sharing this yesterday, to not write a book. <laughs> because yeah, you collect so much thoughts, information. Your own thoughts get so crystallized and you find yourself in amongst all these conversations again and again and again. Yeah, and... and- in so much as Napoleon Hill might have been the original podcaster, the truth is Tony Robbins was mm. very seriously, and because because Napoleon Hill didn't have the technology to be able to record so and share, so but Tony Robbins created a, a series back in the late eighties, early nineties called Power Talk, and all he did was interview the most incredible people on audio cassette tapes, yeah. and I've listened to every one of them, that, and that was the, really truly Tony Robbins was the original podcaster. Yeah, awesome. So, but anyway, back to the, the, Story the storytelling issue, I. I, I view stories as the primary operating uh, system or the primary operating language of the mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you think about it, like the very best way for sapiens to learn, the best way for us to learn is by doing something. Uh-huh. Because when we learn, when we do something, we engage every sense we have in the process. And so we create a holistic memory of what we were doing. And the best way for us to learn is to do. Mm-hmm. And then the next best way for us to learn is to observe. So, you know, uh, when I've gone out to stay with the Hadza Bushman, for example, you've got, you know, two and three year old child children, clearly they can't go hunting. So they yep. can't learn by doing, but they can watch. Mm. They, they watch the, the men practice with their bows. And so I remember very distinctly this really sweet little three year old Bushman child, a boy with his, they made him a miniature bow and he's watching the hunters practice with their bows. And so he starts doing it. So, you know, the doing, doing is the primary way. Watching is the next way. And in the absence of doing and watching, they're storytelling. Because what storytelling does is it creates memories that are almost the same as if you were doing or watching. In a very real sense, if a story is told properly, it should engage your senses. Uh, I could right now, I won't, but I could right now tell you a story that would make you salivate. You can't make yourself salivate right now. You can't do it. It's not a, it's not a function. You can go, oh, I think I'll just salivate. But I could tell a story that would speak to your nervous system and trigger salivation in you. Yeah. So, so storytelling has the same ability to write to the nervous system that doing and observing does. Yeah. And, 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 and I think it's really important for us to remember that, you know, BG... Before Google, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, be- before Google, you know, before Netflix, before but even before television, yeah. families used to sit around the radio, yeah. and all the radio was was a substitute for the fire. You yeah. know, for we've had fire for arguably 1.4 million years. We've spent the vast majority of the 1.4 million years sitting around fires, sharing yeah. stories, and and so storytelling is imperative to effective teaching. I, I've done, I do this all the time. I'll, I'll have an audience, a couple hundred, a couple thousand people. I'll ask everybody in the room to raise their hand if they had at least one teacher that really mattered to them. That to this day, if they could go and have lunch with that teacher and thank them for their contribution to their life, yeah. would they, you know, who has that teacher? And sadly, sadly, it's not everybody. It breaks my heart that it's not everybody because if you think out of the 12 years that most people go to school and out of the plethora of teachers they have in each year, well, how is it they didn't even have one? But it's not everybody. And, and, and then I say, well, how many of you had one of those teachers and how many of you had two? It's half. And how many had three or four? It's even less. But then I say, but for those of you who did have one, was it a good storyteller? Was that teacher a good storyteller? Yep. 
every time. And, and, and because, the, you know, my, my grade three teacher was, uh, uh, my grade three teacher was Jan Kulczynski. And he was a brilliant storyteller. There are classes where I now could still teach you mm. the class that he taught us. I could tell you the stories he told us. Yeah. And because I still remember them. Wow. Because emotion is the glue that causes a lesson to stick, that causes a memory to stick. So storytelling is imperative in the, in, the, in the teaching model. And it creates an unbelievable unfair advantage. This is one of the things that we really talk about a lot in our speaking academy is that effective storytelling creates an unfair professional and business advantage because of this. Here's, here's, here's a thought. If, if, if we're sitting at the fire 100,000 years ago and I share a story about how I survived a really uh, scary situation. I was out hunting and these hyenas gathered around me and, and they were like hunting me and, and, and I tell the story about how I dealt with it and how I saved my life and I'm sitting around the story, sitting around the fire telling you this story and then a week later you're out hunting and a couple hyenas start hassling you mm. and you remember what I did in my story and you do the same thing and it saves your life. Whose fire do you want to sit around for the rest of your life? Mm. That's why storytelling is so incredibly powerful because the minute you give somebody a distinction that improves their quality of life, the minute you give somebody a distinction that saves them a huge amount of time or money or pain, then they want to keep coming back to you. Right. It makes a lot of sense. So it creates an unfair advantage. And, and I believe that, it, 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 that once somebody becomes an effective communicator like that, it, it spills over into every area of their life. I just want to share in that, thank you so much for that, is that I'm really, really in awe of through your art of storytelling and through the conversations we've been having is there's a lot of big scale like nature ideas, metaphysical ideas, philosophies, right? I'm in awe of how you ground them in. That was really awesome. Thank you, thank you so much for that. That's, I think there's real medicine in that, so thank you for, for that. There's something that's been really curious um, bringing for me, and I know we're kind of weaving our way out of this gently, but um, for me, words that activate. I've, I've been noticing this recently. People will say certain words in, like you said, salivate, and then there'll be like a, like a trigger in the nervous system. And I've been observing this more and more in myself, like energy changes when people say certain words in a certain space. What's your? Is there any insight you can offer afford me with with words and activation, or am I just being weird? <laughs> I think humans have. Um, I think some of the most important work that Tony Robbins has done, at least in my opinion, some of the most important work, at least for me, mm-hmm. um, was when he um, uh, developed his what he calls six human need psychology. Yep. And I think it's really, really. I think it may be among the best work that he that he's done in terms of developing original content. Yep. Uh, I then also want to add to it that I actually believe that humans have seven human needs. They have the six that that Tony has demarcated, but then there's a seventh, and that seventh is primary. It's the first one, and it's more important than any of those six, and that is the need for meaning. It is the the need for meaning. At every juncture right now, you're going, what does that mean? What does that mean? (laughs) This very moment you're asking that question is the first question. If somebody were to walk in here with a gun, we immediately go, what would that mean? Right. It it is the very first thing. And it is only it is only once we've assessed a meaning that we can begin satisfying the other emotional needs. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about words that have a charge for somebody, it's because they've attached a meaning to that word. And this is super fantastic in the well in the world of political correctness at the moment. Mm. I, I was uh, listening to Jordan Peterson, you know, the yeah. for all this stuff in Canada around yeah. around um, you know uh, you know uh, legislated use of gender based gender you know gender flexible pronouns and all this kind of stuff. And then one of the interviewers were saying, well, frankly, you know, um, we have to be we have to keep up with the times in political correctness. If th- this this person was Asian, he said, if you were to call me Oriental, I would be deeply offended. 
And I'm like, wow, I want to set my life up so that I'm unoffendable. Like I I, I don't want to have a bunch of meaning about things you can say to me that would cause offense to me. And and so I think that that's ultimately why we have those charge, that we have a charge on a word is that we've given it some meaning. And man, we can improve our happiness when we realize that we're the ones that assess that meaning. Even if society is trying to make us create that meaning. Because some, some years ago, Oriental wouldn't have caused a charge in a bunch of people. And now it does. And maybe there's good reason for it. I'll, I'll give you a funny little pol- political correctness sidebar. Is that in, uh, one of my ex-girlfriends, still a very good friend of mine today, Carrie, she, she said to me the other day, no, oh, this is about a year ago. She said, uh, she goes, the political correctness movement in Canada is just going too far. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, in Canada, you're no longer even supposed to address an immigrant as an immigrant. You're not even, oh, you're an immigrant. You know, you go, don't go to the line that says, you know, immigrate. It'll say, you're now a new Canadian, right? Like, I, so I'm an immigrant. So I'm now a new Canadian. And to me, that's like, oh, come on. It's just a word. Like, why is that? Why do I have to put a meaning? That it's yeah. Some, so she goes, yeah, it's just going too far. She goes, for example, I can't even, I can't even use the word Indian relative to myself anymore. And I go, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean? And then, of course, I forgot that her, I think, grandmother was a, a native Canadian, uh-huh. like, you know, a, a pre-European Canadian, whatever the correct So, So she goes, I can't even call myself an Indian. I go, well, why not? And, and I, mean, I know why she shouldn't. And she goes, I go, why not? And she goes, well, you know, because, you know, we, she has a status card, which means as, as an as a native Canadian yeah. previously called an Indian because of Columbus, not having any idea where he was, yeah. uh, you know, he, he, she said that means that she has a status card, which meant she could go live on what we used to call an Indian reserve. Right. right. So, so, uh, so I go, why can't you call yourself an Indian? She goes, well, cause the Asians have hijacked the term. And I said, which Asians have hijacked the term? And she goes, the ones from India. <laughs> and I said, do you mean the Indians? They're originally you mean called the Indians, Indians from India. And you were wrongly misidentified as oh. in the festival. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's so cute, isn't it? She's so sweet. Like she just, you know, she, as soon as she saw it, she laughed. Really, She's very really. has really powerful humility. Yeah. And she thought she yeah. saw the humor and immediately. Yeah. But the 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 funny thing is, is that now. We live in this world where okay, I can say a word like salivate. You have a meaning about that. I can say a word like I can I can say a word like um, uh, you know fresh steak off the barbecue. Mm-hmm. And there's some people in the population that would immediately begin to salivate, and there's other people that would want to vomit. Mm-hmm. And it's just because the meaning that they've created attached to that word. And this, right. and I really mean this. I believe that people's happiness would be vastly improved mm-hmm. if they would pay a little bit more attention to the meanings that they create about stuff so oh. that they were less offendable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really respect that perspective on, on offense. And that was really a beautiful share. Is there any last sort of wisdom you feel compelled to share before we dive out of this? Is there anything that, yeah? Life, life's short. Enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, just enjoy it. Not at all costs, not at the cost of others, but enjoy it holistically enjoy it in a way that supports our biosphere enjoy it in a way that supports the the other human beings around you and and uh and have fun and wake up in the morning with abundant thoughts you know i i love what lynn twist said in the soul of money and she says uh if you wake up in the morning and your first thought is i didn't get enough sleep then your first thought was a lack thought and that's going to set you up for lack vibration for the rest of the day and i'm thinking wake up in the morning go you know what i am thrilled to be alive I'm thrilled to have the friends that I have around me. I'm thrilled to have the opportunities I have around me. And I am absolutely thrilled to be alive. And then that's going to create that little belief that's going to look for evidence that there's a lot of abundance around you. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. My last question, and by no means my least question, 
beyond the name, beyond the businesses, beyond the speaking academy, beyond Wild Fit, beyond the skin suit, who are you? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just a guy traveling through the universe, uh, having the best possible experience that I can. I love you. <laughs> so I just really want to take this last minute to, to thank you. Um, for me, a big passion of mine is ontology. I'm an instructional engineer and also a meditator. So it's all about inner space, outer space, and the and the curation and the the dance between the two. So the, the and the ontology of storytelling, but also the health and the entrepreneurs, like the way you curate fundamentally not just your message, but embed that in the context of your life. That is super powerful, brother. So thank you for all the work you do on yourself, you've done on your past, the messages that you're sharing now and the work that will come in the future. I really respect that. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. And thanks very much for having me. I, I really, I, I value, um, I, I'll say this to you, and, and, and I don't mean this in any sort of platitude. I, get, you know, I, I go through a bunch of different interviews, whether it's mainstream or podcast or what have you, and every now and again, I get to have a real conversation, you know, where, where it's a, where it's a, where it's a, a chat and not a predetermined thing. You have such a natural style of interviewing. So I really appreciate you, uh, your style. And, uh, I really appreciate you bringing me here. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Eric. For those that want to get in touch with you, um, the easiest way to do that would be eric.ee. Yep. www.eric.ee. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook under my name. And, uh, yeah, those are great ways. Wicked. Awesome. Thank you so much, brother. Cheers. Hey tribe, thanks for tuning in to another fun, enlightening episode of the Inspired Evolution. I've been loving all the feedback and personal stories of love, uh, health and growth. Your feedback and stories are incredibly welcome. The easiest way to connect with me is via my website, which is www.amrit-sandu.com. You can leave me a message or a comment. It's one of my highest values to connect, so I love to connect and love to hear from you. You can also find me on Facebook, Amrit Sandu. And if the content has been resonating with you, you can help the Inspired Evolution out in a big way by liking the YouTube channel, subscribing to the Inspired Evolution, or the Facebook page, like that please, at the Inspired Evolution, or by leaving a review on iTunes if you're on an Apple device. And also, if the Inspired Evolution episodes are inspiring an evolution within you, or you can feel the inspiration is valuable for your team to evolve to the next level, you can head on over to www.amret-sandu.com to see how the Inspired Evolution can help you and your team thrive. Much love, tribe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 